had rather an unpleasant reputation around the turn of the century. My name is Terry Gionofrio. Nice to meet you. I'm Rose Ray Woodhouse. Uh, we, we're new tenants here. You have a most interesting inner quality, Guy. It appears in your television work, too. It should take you a long way indeed, provided, of course, that you get those initial breaks. Donald Baumgart, he's gone blind. He woke up yesterday and he can't see. Let's have a baby, all right? Let's have three babies, one at a time, all right? Has an undertaste. A chalky undertaste. I dreamed someone was raping me. Thanks a lot. It'll stop any day now. It's like a wire inside me getting tighter and tighter. You have been in pain since November and he's not doing anything to help you? They use blood in their rituals and the blood that has the most power is baby's blood. There are plots against people, aren't there? Yes, I suppose there are. Well, there, there's one against me and my baby. God is dead! Hail Satan! Satan lives! The year is one! Hail! The year is one! Oh, God is dead! This is The Rear Window, I'm Dima Ballon, and Polanski's Rosemary's Baby is 50 years old this year, and we're here to talk about it. I'm um, here with uh, David Kleiler and Jean-Paul Ouellette. Welcome, guys. Hey, thank you. Yeah, good to see you again, Dima. So, in 1968, there were at least two uh, films released that were related to devil worship. Rosemary's Baby was one of them, the other one was Hammer's The Devil Rides Out. Both films couldn't be any more different from each other. Uh, Hammer's typical kind of moral structure was always very conservative. The good guys win, the bad guys lose. Rosemary's Baby has a totally different worldview. Was Rosemary's Baby the film that kind of signaled this shift that was happening around that time? Well, I think, yeah, I think so, but... In terms of what was going on at Paramount Studio at the time, why don't you talk about that, JP? Because there is a definitely a, there's a sea change at Paramount at this point, and then I can maybe fill in the, well, the larger context. Well, there was a sea change all across the Hollywood film industry at this point. Because th- this was the point where the studios suddenly realized that they were getting beaten out by television. And they were terrified of the whole new television audience that would take away from their theatrical runs. And this is also the, the moment when we no longer liked musicals. We no longer cared about big costume epics. And we didn't really want to go and see, we didn't need to go see a lot of f- films that had been made and put on screens. So what, what the studios did was they started shelving all of the old style projects and looking for newer projects. Uh, and this, this is the era when suddenly these small films like Easy Rider were becoming hot box office properties for very little money, but with a very, very youthful view of the world. It was the breaking of the the biggest thing that the studios wanted to do was to break the code, the, the Hollywood production code. Now, they knew that television would be absolutely locked to the code. Because you couldn't do things on television. You couldn't show nudity. You couldn't swear. There were all these things. You couldn't show somebody dying that easily on television. And they even would have Is to... Is that right? They even had to cut stuff out of films. 
to show them on television. There was a broadcasting code, and there still is. I mean, a few years, it's getting broken now by cable. But at the time, the studios knew that the television couldn't do, so they needed to do something on the screen the television couldn't do. So yes, violence, sex, uh, all of those things suddenly became big in Hollywood movies. Well, one of the interesting things here too is that um, with the exception of the low-budget film uh, director, Roger Corman, there was very little awareness of what was going on. Uh, all of a sudden there was this big audience for European, Japanese films. Hollywood's film, they, they seemed there was a freshness about them that Hollywood films at that point, they were still making Doris Day movies, I think. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, beginning around 1966, a couple of low-budget films, sort of that, wait a minute, there's other stuff going on that were just outside of what the studio manufacturer stuff was. Seconds, uh, John Hancock's Seconds, and uh, Arthur Penn's Mickey One. And then came out, for anybody who wants to read it, one of the great books uh, that came out is a film called Pictures from a Revolution. It's a sort of case history of the five films that got nominated for an Oscar in 1967, the year before Rosemary's Baby came out. And it talks about old school Hollywood, Dr. Doolittle, somewhat old school Hollywood, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, the middle ground film, In the Heat of the Night, the slightly more progressive film, The Graduate, and then Bonnie and Clyde. And with the uh, clear influence of the crime films of the French New Wave. And all of a sudden there was something fresh and it confused, a movie like Bonnie and Clyde confused establishment critics like Bodley Crother at the, uh, at the New York Times, who, because uh, he never got Bonnie and Clyde, he ended up getting fired or offering his resignation or something <laughs> like that. So then here's Robert Evans, a new studio head at Paramount Pictures, which apparently hadn't been doing that well. He does a couple of the by the numbers kind of things, uh, big adaptations of Broadway musicals, Barefoot by the Park and The Odd Couple, uh, Neil Simon comedies, there was a pre-built-in audience. But then he, 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 he's a businessman. He picks up a, um, a hot, well, you know, he optioned the thing before it became a bestseller. He knew it was a hot property. Well, he didn't. The oh, interesting Castle thing here Castle is Castle William did. Castle, the low-budget horror yeah. director, optioned this, this book before it was released. Yeah, he optioned the book, and he took it to, uh, to uh, Evans. Evans sort of thought it would be a good property. Now, at, at what point... The decision was made after it had become a bestseller. I, I just don't know that. But whatever it was, I think Evans thought there's something different going on in this story. But was it? Was Castle wanted to direct the film. Yeah, Castle wanted to direct it, and Evans convinced him to eventually just to have his production company produce it. And so what Evans did was somehow convince Polanski, who was only 34 years old at this point, but he was part of the new cinema from Europe. And the first film we made ended up being on the cover of Time magazine, you know, Knife in the Water. And somehow there was something that Evans may have intuited, whatever. But apparently, my poor story, as I remember it, is that he, he lured Polanski over to, on the, you know, making a, a pretty conventional uh, sports film, Downhill Racer. Well, which did, did, which once again was a younger film, younger people's film. Yes. And did well. So, so, but, but Polanski, yes, Polanski was a ski freak, which yes. is what Evans used to get him over here. But partly because of Evans had seen Repulsion, uh, which uh, Polanski made in England in what, 1962, uh, so. there's a, a similarity of subject. A, a woman left alone to her own device, a, a film done in rigorous point of view, camera, uh, 
a paranoid thriller. There was a, a similarity in subject, and uh, Evans got Polanski to uh, to make Rosemary's Baby. So it was because of repulsion. Um, that's what would make sense. Well, re- repulsion sense, and yeah. bringing a young talent to to a project as opposed to an old, tired man like William Castle at this point. Yeah, so there'll be definitely a. Uh, I think Evans was looking for freshness, both in terms of the kind of film he was going to make, but also in terms of, hey, we got, we got to re-energize. And of course, Paramount apparently needed to be re-energized at that point, too. Mm. And so uh, it was a, you know, a business decision, certainly. Well, Universal had, had already started, I believe, at this point, to get into the hiring young kids, give them a million dollars and see what they make. And Zerich um, Polanski uh, coming in with a kind of a dual thing. On the one hand, he's coming to Hollywood, and even though he's been an independent filmmaker, for the, uh, the, um, all of a sudden he's making a studio film. Uh, but at, a, and at age 30, okay, I got to do this. So one of the great things, and this is one of the, one of the things you know, I think we'll get to in the, uh, in the discussion. On the one hand, he has to do what the studio wants, make a, a, a faithful adaptation of a, what by this time was a big bestseller. Uh, but yet... Uh, the big question is: Is it still a Polanski film? Was it John? And Cassav- we will definitely get to that. One. Yeah, yeah. We'll- because one of the things that John John Cassavetes, uh, who plays the bad guy in the film, he and Polanski didn't get along. And uh, of course, what was interesting that same year, Polanski uh, uh, Cassavetes with his own sort of like handheld camera approach. They did, faces came out the same year as Rosemary's Baby. Stylistic, you couldn't have two more contrastive films. Which is probably why they didn't get along on set. Uh, I'm sure. Two directors are not going to be happy together. Not at all. And of course, I think one of the things that Cassavetes said was that Polanski may be an artist, but Rosemary's Baby is not a work of art. <laughs> Which again, there's that kind of weird dichotomy here. Uh, it is a faithful studio film on the earth, and it's, I still feel it's a Polanski film. Well, Polanski, who rewrote the script himself, stays very faithful to the book, which includes the ending. Uh, how is this a Polanski film from, from an auteurist point of view? Well, we can go back to, what, you know, once again, yes, he was faithful to the, to the novel, Right down to what people wore, how see, how scenes appeared, and and he was very faithful. And, and in fact, some people laugh about it because he had not coming to America. He had not yet learned that you can change a novel to turn it into a film. But he was incredibly faithful. In fact, Ira Levin, who wrote the novel, was stunned by how accurate it was and how. As far as Levin said, it it is the most accurate Hollywood movie from a book he had ever seen, and, and it, not only his own. Yes, and I think by any analysis that's true, but it doesn't mean it's not a Polanski film. Right, and, uh, that's the thing. I mean, if it's not a question of changes, it's a question of points of emphasis. I think. Uh, uh, well, and pacing, and, yeah. and 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 point of view, and style of how it's filmed. How he handles suspense and thrills. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are all specific. You know, those are the things that Evans, I'm sure, knew William Castle could not have done, done well. No way. You no know, way. The William Castle no. was more of a Hammer style. In fact, he was a Hammer. I thought he worked with Hammer, so. but he it it needed a fresh new style, which is and obviously Repulsion was a good example for Evans to say, "This is good material for this young director." I think that's it, and I, I do believe that Evans knew repulsion because there are so many similarities. But don't forget, 
in terms of, uh, of Polanski's career, Repulsion was his first re apartment film. Uh, but Life in the Water was certainly a film which dealt with claustrophobia and tensions, uh, uh, tensions of, of war. I mean, being able to, one of the great things about this film, as in Repulsion, he really knows how to work with an enclosed space. And again, he worked with William Fraker, who I, I can imagine that, that they, there's a kind of a tension that's in the film as her paranoia begi uh, begins and accelerates because of the, these are corridors and just the whole angles of things. It's a visceral feeling you get in the film that I'm not sure another director working with a cinematographer would have recreated. Well, and this is also, Fraker is held a lot stronger, held back a lot more here for some reason. You know, Fraker's used to doing big, gigantic films. And this is not exactly a Fraker film. Not as much as his, you know, his other films. <laughs> but even the, the kinds of things, uh, and again, the positioning of the camera, we get uh, Mia Farrow in foreground, and we haven't quite figured out quite how all of those little uh, passages work in the back. And we see in the background, it's, it's different from like a horror film where you get, oh my God, we get to chill with those people. Uh, but we see these people moving in and out of the apartment. Uh, of the, but it's the question of the positioning of that. Uh, we see it from her garage, and she doesn't know what's going on any more than we really know what's going on either at that point. Well, except that we're, we've seen enough at that point where, A, it's a chill to see the two guys go across right. the screen behind her. Yes. So we get a chill. It's a, you know, it's a frightening, shocking moment, and it's shot to be. But it also, as far as the geography, we know that at this point, we pretty much know the geography of their apartment. Yes. And it's almost instantaneous that you go, aha, I know where they came from. Right. Which is, right. Uh, which is also eerie and creepy along with the chalk. Uh, yeah, because yeah, because it, certainly in terms of the expository part of it, when they're going through the apartment, why is this bureau here, and why is that? A, you know, those kinds of things. So we sort of, yeah, you're right. We know this uh, right. from a purely plot structure point of view. And then we also got a hint because we have her POV as she's about to give birth, going through the closet. Yes. So we do get. I mean, it's very well woven as far as storytelling. Mm -hmm. that we capture that and we figure it out and we're we're actually we learn a little bit more ahead of her which is nice especially for a pov film where we're we're getting information that the character doesn't have but without violating pov correct uh, so we're able to see hints of things because to a certain extent part of what makes the film work we do fear for her hmm. uh so we knows we know things, not because we we cut away to a private meeting between John Cassavetes and the Castanets uh, or Castavets or whatever they're called, mm -hmm. but we we are maybe brighter than she is. Uh, yeah, but also it, this is the the filmmaker informing us, and once again, you know, like Hitchcock is to set up a suspense, as a as opposed to yes, that was a thriller when they ran by. But the suspense is when we know that there's impending danger, yeah. and especially when she doesn't. Well, the uh, and what is interesting, I, I guess, from what I, I heard, 
um, Castle went to Hitchcock first and he turned it down. Another master <laughs> of point of view narration. But he works a different way. I mean, this this is a, as an exercise in paranoia with unlike repulsion where there are no hands crumb, crumb, uh, grabbing her out of the walls or something like that. Right. Uh, it's a, a pretty controlled thriller. But other ways, I think it, it's again, maybe he's working with his cameraman. Uh, I mean, certainly the sense of there was a claustrophobia, a kind of a way that all of his four uh, apartment films, Repulsion, uh, the first one he makes, again, with Paramount, after the whole uh, uh, getting kicked out of the country kind of thing, or uh, after uh, uh, The Tenant. Right. Okay, how much closer can you get to this kind of thing? Well, The Tenant in many so for me, The Tenant is him reworking this story better for him. Because, I mean, so, I mean, he has Repulsion, this, and The Tenant, all of which are about claustrophobia, loss of identity, the essentially existential feeling of total loneliness. Absolutely, with the identity. And we feel viscerally while watching Rosemary's Baby, uh, when one works with a point of view camera, as, as we do end up feeling as members of the audience, identification and empathy with the person through whose eyes we're seeing. And that's always a question to be asked in terms of one's response, but in terms of how it works, we do feel for Rosemary. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure we feel that way in, in, uh, with his multiple suicides at the end of The Tenet. And again, he does it again, but it's more of the sense of humor, um, a film that doesn't deal with paranoia or identity. It's, an, again, an adaptation. It's another adaptation. It's an adaptation of a stage play called Carnage. Mm-hmm. But again, the moments that are Polanski-like uh, are slightly uh, like when he opens up the film a little bit and gets the idea of what what the world is like from the standpoint of outsiders. Uh, and one of the great things, there are so many uh, really good things. I'm sure it's totally faithful to the novel, but things that plant. No, but in um, uh, one of the great scenes that I think is like you know pulling out the rug emotionally. The uh, when he goes, she goes to the doctor she's wanted to go to all along, and she's prevented from going to. All right, and. There's a part of us, I think, that wants to believe, even though clearly, okay, do we trust this guy too? Uh, but she goes to him and it turns out that he's one of them. And not even, I'm not sure he's one of them. No, he's, he's not there in this final scene. Uh, yeah, no, he's. I don't think he's one of them, but he's one of. The, he's like everybody else who's not going to believe in this. And you listen to watch that scene of her trying to explain. She sounds, she does, if you take it outside, she does sound nuts. Come with us quietly, Rosemary. Don't argue or make a scene. Because if you say anything more about witches or witchcraft, we're going to be forced to take you to a mental hospital. You don't want that, do you? So put your shoes on. We just want to take you home. No one's going to hurt you. Or the baby. Put your shoes on. Well, well but also the, the so other much- one is the power of her, do- her, her demonic doctor, the witch doctor, um, is rich and famous and deals with huge amounts of glamorous people. And he's much bigger and more important than the doctor that she goes to. So, which also is this creepy thing of, oh my God, this guy has a lot of power. Now I bet that's not quite the way it played out in the zeitgeist of the women's lib movement. I mean, one way to read that scene is that he doesn't trust her because she's a hysterical woman, which is probably the way a lot of people would have 
would yeah, have read Yeah, oh, that absolutely. No, the but time. there's definitely that. But also that her real doctor is bigger and more powerful than he is, which is why he acquiesces to this other doctor. I well, sort of have a to go with JP on that one. Uh, the um, Because I, I think the women's lip thing... Uh, I mean, there is a way uh, somewhere early in the film about being in control of one's own, oh, I might be confusing it last night with the film we saw mm. last night, uh, on Destiny. But the thing is that as the film ends, I mean, she has given herself over, her own Destiny, over to the coven. Right. So you can't make this say, I don't think, actually, I quite frankly don't think Women's Love has a role in this film. Well, I, I, I would somewhat disagree. I think this is a period, you know, we're talking about Ira Levin, who did write The Stepford Wives. Stepford Wives, okay. Stepford Wives, yeah. So, okay, good. So, 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 and as far as the women's lib aspect of this, obviously this is a film aimed at women with a central female character that women will I, identify with. But this is a woman who is very quickly stripped of everything as, as the whole women's lib felt they were. And we see her completely stripped of everything in the world by the end of the film, uh, right up to the last moment. <laughs> Within her marriage. Both women, no, also her friends. Her uh, friends, all, every, yeah. Her, everybody her, is stripped away from her. Her community. Correct. It's, they're not really her friends. It's her community. It's, it's, it's in Levin's book. But here she is, you know, deliberately from Omaha, Nebraska, which could be, the, in the minds of any New Yorker, is the antithesis of New York City. And so they're playing on very familiar tropes here that, okay, country girl coming to the city. Uh, and with the bookended kind of scream, we, we are very much aware of the fact we're in a city in, in New York, uh, uh, bookended that way. But yeah, in terms of the evolution, as she, I think JP described it very nice, uh, the uh, she gets stripped away of all the things that are there, for, you know, not going to the doctor, not going to the, um, you know, her own friends when they have that party. And uh, again, something Polanski would have played up in, but, I, but it's, I'm sure it's in the book, uh, but it would have been the kind of thing he would have emphasized. You know, when, uh, what's his name, Hutch uh, says, look at you, uh, you know, you're, you're pale, you've lost weight, that kind of thing. And her friends say that again. So the idea of the identity aspect, she's lost this. And yeah, we sense her increasing isolation. And we get involved because of the point of view work. We have to get involved with her own thinking process. I mean, I'm curious to reread the book and to see what I would think rereading the book in terms of my own feelings about her. Because so much of this we get through uh, things visually. Mm -hmm. uh, and that had to be done verbally in Ira Levin's book. It'd be the same story, but the way I would feel about her increasing isolation. Uh, right. Well, uh, the, the question now, is, does, does the book ver, um, narratively talk about this, or does, does she internally talk about this, would be the big question here, which obviously you can't do in a film. But I, I, no, I, if the women's lib is absolutely, it's a, it's a, perfect example of the reason why there should be women's lip as was yeah. Stepford Wives. Yeah. Now, my lovely girlfriend and I had an interesting conversation about the ending of this film. She feels that the ending is not perhaps as ambiguous as I do. She feels it's more of a positive ending. Not a happy ending, but a positive ending because it's the first time she makes her own choice. It's an actual choice 
And uh, she basically leaves her husband in the shit because uh, he probably wanted, well, he said to her that, uh, you know, we can have other children. You know, he, he, he wanted to, to have a successful career and maybe have other children with Rosemary. And by choosing to take care of this baby, she basically said to him, fuck you. It's a fuck no. you to her husband. Yeah, I just I think we're going to disagree with you. Now, I yeah. well, um there's a strong disagreement. There's this whole line remember, you know, the play he's in, uh, nobody loves an albatross. Uh if you follow that logic, at the end he becomes the albatross. Well, but you but I don't disagree with that at all. I mean, clearly there's some sort of way that something um you know, one of the things we don't know, he's got all the success, but Polanski never Let's have a scene where we think him as an actor as good as an actor, and remember that scene he's doing in his living room, he's walking around on crutches. Yeah. Would you go to? I mean, it's not good acting. And I cast It's not even a, a good play either. The no, di- the dialogue he's put, spouting is not that great, and he's not doing it very well. Right. And so Cassavetes is a better actor uh, than the character he plays in the film. Right. And there's a kind of, and again, that would be a Pulaski emphasis, I think, uh, seeing that dichotomy. But I might see my take on the end of the film. Uh, it's certainly more cynical than yours. Yeah, she spits on him and she gets rid of him. That's great. But she still chooses to be the mother of the devil. And my, my reading on the thing is that I want to be a mother so badly, I will do anything just to be a mother. Oh, I see. I even disagree with that because. In, I don't think taking the baby is a decision that she makes. Okay. I think dumping the husband is the only decision she makes. But in dumping her husband, she's lost the last bit of her identity. I mean, she's already lost her child. Correct. She, and now she discards her husband. Now she has absolutely nothing in the world. And Except the baby. she does, no, no, she doesn't make the decision for the baby. They coax her into it. Mm-hmm. This is a woman who has lost her soul. And remember, mm-hmm. taking on the baby is, she's essentially selling her soul to the devil. She's kind of no way a positive okay, thing. So, and, 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 and I don't think we disagree. I think your reading is even more cynical than mine. Oh, I, I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the interesting thing though. In the book, uh, Rosemary seems to be more, uh, let's say, consciously religious than she is in the film. In uh, the film, her Catholicism is kind of casual. And at the end of the book, we hear her thoughts. She considers throwing the baby out the window and then herself after it. And then she decides against it. So in the book, it's probably more of a conscious choice than in the film. Maybe, but I... I the film definitely does not make it a concert. No, we, we don't her. get that dilemma. We, yeah. we don't see her in the throes of a dilemma. Rocky. You're trying to get me to be his mother. Aren't you his mother? Uh, and you're right. How we want to read it, whether it's her own, I want to be a mother at no matter what, or that. Uh, because to a certain extent, among the things that people have said about the film, the only person who's not an actor in the film as, as a natural character is Mia Farrow. Everybody else is performing in some way. They're creating these rituals. And so therefore, my, my sense of 
of um, she's going towards her natural instincts of being a mother. And, you know, at what price of that? Um, one of the interesting things, again, I just, you know, I just read this, uh, Polanski doesn't play around very much. I mean, there are certain kinds of things that Polanski, uh, where Polanski touches, but they were, they were in the book. The Japanese photographer at the, uh, at the, uh, mm -hmm. at the uh, and of course, you know, obviously we knew in the 60s, Everybody knows that every place you went to, any place, there were Japanese people with cameras. I mean, yeah, that was right, exactly yeah. it. It is it's and that, a joke. And again, yes. But Polanski would have kept that because it's humorous. Right. And there's a kind of a way, like at the end of Repulsion, there's a plane where, my God, this is funny. What are we doing here? I mean, this is, we have this big death scene at the end. But the uh, the one, the God is Dead uh, uh, Time magazine cover, that's in the book, apparently. Mm -hmm. But that would be like a kind of thing Plasky would not cut out of the uh, of the film, right? Yeah. Although I I I am willing to bet because the last line of the film of the book is not here, right? Which is um, what is it? Hail Rosemary. Yeah, I think so. Um, which is obviously Hail Mary, but in a demonic way. And I have a feeling that it was Paramount who made the decision, not Polanski, is to draw back from being anti-Christian. That it, this is just could be the anti. It, yes, this is the son of the devil. That I don't even think they ever said antichrist. That this is just the son of the devil, and and therefore it's implied, but it's never said. That uh, it would be, a, you know, just the Exorcist once was the one that went, oh my God, this is anti-Christian. This is or positively Christian or whatever. However, people reacted. Um, although this one did get. Both William Castle and Paramount got a lot of really nasty letters over Rosemary's Baby. But we have um, Robert Evans and Roman Polanski and uh, Ira Levin, all of whom are Jewish. I mean, what do you? It's like no, but the uh, was, you know, getting off into the history of Hollywood with with uh, that kind of content. Uh, but I wouldn't see the point of it would, there's such a direct line in, in, in terms of it as a thriller bringing in. Uh, we're not dealing with a like what's his name, that great Dutch director, you know, like the Fourth Man or something. We're not dealing with the complexities of being a Catholic in this film. We're, we're not, and uh, I don't see that being even relevant in the film. Uh, and so, like the Fourth Man, it was a Paul Verhoeven, I think. I right. like, I really like that film. I I don't see that whether it was in the book or not. I don't see in terms of. But didn't you say the other night? Uh, that originally this was a four-hour film, and well, that yeah, we will get to that one too. As far as who who is the auteur of this, right? Well, in many ways, it, obviously, the, the Roman Polanski's cut was four hours long. And four hours long. Four hours long. Now, I would love to Polanski see Polanski <laughs> did not know how to cut it down, so it was literally turned over to an editor who slashed at his his own preference without Polanski. And Polanski really liked what, what, what happened. But Polanski could not figure out how to get it down to two hours. So, Which is very interesting because that, you know, that's part of a job of being a director. Is, not um, always. To edit not, your own. Not in studios. Not in studios, but if you're, right. you know... Well, they, I, think, I mean, this once again, this is why we have an auteur theory, which is the French said, you cannot touch it. I am the author. The, I have final say. I have final cut. As we said at the which, beginning. Yeah, <laughs> but even, even directors who have a final cut still work with an editor, typically. They don't just right. edit their own films. Some, well, we're some. still going through the, uh, uh, the uh, 
you know, you go off with the original question. Is this a film that is, you know, an interesting film from the standpoint of the transition from old Hollywood to new Hollywood? And the old studio film. How often did a director, I mean, usually a director goes off to the next job, someone like Michael Curtiz does five, directs five films a year right. for Warner Brothers. And once he's done directing, he's, it's in, into the hands of a, of a director. Of so an there editor, was yeah. still an atmosphere in Hollywood, the, the, the kind of way you described it. Give it over to a, uh, give it over to, uh, I mean, obviously there had to be more give and take than would have happened in Warner Brothers in the 1940s. But there's still, was an acceptability of that practice, I'm sure, with the studio system. Uh, and don't forget what Evans was doing is rebuilding a studio, where the where he was one of the you know bright young people, to sort of say, hey, but there's something else here. We need to abandon the old ways, but yet some of the old ways had to have crept into uh, even in uh, in Polanski adhered to them. Uh, apparently, well, this is still a, a rather conservative film. I mean, did uh, did the toppling of the code play any part in this? Well, no, this plays a part in the toppling of the code. The code wasn't yep. quite gone. The code was beaten to death by Hollywood. It, it, it was never officially stopped. It was, you know, it just Hollywood finally said, hey, guess what? We're making these movies. We don't care. When did that happen? In the six. In the 60s. 60, well, the thing is, yeah, yeah, but 68, 69, you, no, right No, no, but it there. took a few years for it to happen. The, uh, it went to the various, it's a, I mean, I grew up in a period of time when all of a sudden there was Cinerama, CinemaScope, VistaVision, all that shit. And then, again, that was the first stage of Hollywood. We needed to do something because television was coming in. Right. And so we'd go up to go, so be, the robe was done in Cinerama uh, or CinemaScope. I saw this is Cinerama, all those kinds of things. And then, so that got to be the form. Uh, you know, all of a sudden the big screen films came in. And then there gets to be, where well, they're still doing Doris Day movies. And the musicals, MGM, I forget when the last MGM musical was, but uh, could it have been Gigi? Was that in the 60s? Uh, the, um, I think so. <laughs> then all of a sudden, what was coming in, people were paying attention to the films from Europe, all of a sudden, um, things were different. Well, yeah, I remember, because at this point, there, there, there was, I don't even think the Hayes office was still there. I think it was now the MPAA. Well, it was, was the it, censorship board. You're probably right. And, I, and the trick was, Obviously, during this period, there were a lot of old school people on the board of the MPAA who rated yeah. your film, and it's all about the rating. You know, they would have given everything an X at a certain point, and they suddenly had to say, "Well, no, we got to back off and give it an R." And even I, though these were art films, and I, when I was in college, uh, this is when all the, the Ingmar Bergman and the uh, Francois Truffaut and the Fellini films were coming out. Mm -hmm. But I know part of you know uh, part of my motivation for going to the movies. I would see more skin in a European film than I would see in an American film. Oh, yeah. Or a pseudo-one like Teresa and Isabel. Okay, yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> that, that, it's a pseudo-European movie. Yeah, totally pseudo. But then, see, my memory of uh, the code goes, not just a question of sex and violence, but even a question of morality. My memory, at least in terms of my own, what random way, it was the 1966 uh, Thomas Crown Affair, where actually... It was contrived, but the bad guy gets, he's done, he's done the robbery, he gets away with it, he goes, he's going off flying, you know, so the Steve McQueen character. So it, re it revels in his criminality. Uh, yes. And so all of a sudden, you know, we've been used to films, like the Warner Brothers gangster films, where uh, we like the bad guy. I mean, there's that, no question about the, the, the filmmakers ex exploited this, but the bad guy always got killed. Uh, 
at least for me, the Thomas Crown Affair, 66, wait a minute, he committed a crime and he's getting away with it. He's not being punished. And so therefore, again, it's- And that's the, a studio picture. Yes, it is. And we get to, uh, it's in that two or three, Bonnie and Clyde really uh, tested the limits. And even, even some of that, wasn't a question of so much code, uh, although there's a brief shot of, of, of nudity there. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it, it, it was a Warner Brothers film, even though I don't think it was consciously on Warner Brothers' part. But all of a sudden, our sympathies were with the bad guys. Right. And so it, it pushed that envelope a little bit farther. Yes, they got killed at the end. But our sense of, of because they were against the, the, the banks and stuff like that. These were all... These were, uh, in, in oh, the filmmaker in that one is recreating the, the era in which yes. they were heroes to a lot of the population of the United States. And the film, and, and the film gives yes. that again. It makes the audience feel that, which I think is amazing. But yes, it's definitely transgressive. And all of a sudden, we get uh, uh, go to see Rosemary's Baby in 1968. Mia Farrow, we see more of Mia Farrow than uh, I think I've seen more of any American actress at that point <laughs> in, 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 in going to film. So that kind of sense, uh, uh, apart from the devil worship and, you know, and don't forget, the devils win at the end. Uh, right. the, um, uh, the how, how, how radical was this film at, at that time? Uh, not just in terms of the, the devil winning, but just in terms of all the nudity. Because it has... It was radical. Quite well, a bit. Not that for, radical. For, for Hollywood, it was radical. I mean, because basically the first major theatrical release, which was an indie, was 1959's The Immoral Mr. Tease, which made earned a million dollars with nude, bare nipples. And that shocked the world. But it also was the, the start of the move where next was, so this was a nudie but cutie. The film, next one is now the Roger Corman's go, we can put in a little nudity. But and did that Indies film play in, in mainstream the, uh, cinemas? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's the first film that played mainstream cinemas. Really? That did it. Oh, okay. And that's, you know, it, it was, everybody thought, oh, it's just a nudie cutie. So it's okay, but it made a million dollars, which means it's some—it's not exactly just a little nudie cutie. It was a powerful film that actually made money. Mm. Powerful, powerful economically. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's not a powerful film. But, no, but it's all economically and audience-wise. Yeah, it was a powerful film, and, and that so that's the beginning of the change and the change, and as the studios were getting terrified of television, they were going, "Well, wait a second. If the indies can do this, and they're getting lots and lots of kids to go to it, and old guys even, to go to it, what, why are we holding back? And this is the period where they hired guys who went, I have no problem showing nudity in, in my movie. You know, the directors, I don't care. I'm a European. We do it all the time. And so we get that uh, with the influx of European directors and the, the sort of breakdown of the traditional ways of looking at film. I mean, to a certain extent, one of the things in reviewing uh, 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 um, Rosemary's Baby, a film that was powerful when I first saw it, you know, Polanski's a surrealist. But there's this kind of, that whole, the whole, uh, she gets pregnant by the devil scene, which is hallucinatory, sort of a weird mixture of, of psychedelic and uh, some, of, some of Polanski's traditional surrealism, sort of a mixture didn't quite work for me this time. But we go on to what Roger Corman had already done in The Trip and what goes on later in Easy Rider. Right. Uh, so there's a kind of psychedelic aspect of, of the thing. So it's a weird combination of that. And again, 
we in terms of of uh, a big studio film like Rosemary's Baby, people who would go to they were just the megaplexes were just emerging at that point. Uh, they were used to seeing stuff like this. So I guess just part of the motivation would have been I can see stuff I haven't seen normally, and yet you right. still have you know, the, the way that in the way the project was developed, uh, uh, the uh, you had the hipness of a, of a European director who was you know known. Uh, you had a, a bestseller. I mean, as a business decision, this was just like a no-brainer right. uh, from Evans' standpoint. And uh, yet, I still think it's a notorious film. I mean, it's a Polanski film, and it's a uh, uh, the compatibility of the two were. I see no violation of the auteur theory with uh, with uh, the fact mm -hmm. that he, he made a film which is faithful to the source. Right. One of the things that apparently he did, and it may be points of emphasis in the thing, it's not that it's there, apparently there's a line change, there are a couple of line changes that uh, that Polanski did do. When Elisha Cook is interviewing him, he asks him, are you a doctor? And, 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 and Mia Farrow interjects, he's an actor. That's not in the original. Mm. And so, some of the thinking goes all the way through because you know again I, I don't want to make too much out of that but it's a change that's all uh that's there and that the whole way that people taking care of her and the whole way the doctor i mean again it's in the book the other thing he changed uh from the book was the name of that woman who commits suicide right it was in the book it was piper laurie but apparently the woman who the name she has there is the name of somebody real and she was playing herself no that that that's her name She's the actress's real name is the name that they use. She's, the, don't you, you look yeah. like that actress something Ventry? Yes. The, the actress's real name is that. That's her real name. And so, to a certain extent, the whole idea that um, if there's a way of looking at uh, the, uh, Rosemary as being the only real person in the entire, everybody else is performing, and everybody else has. But again, there's not something that's not in the book already. But Polanski has played off that in other films. That you know, the kind of thing, he would be attuned to. Uh, mm -hmm. These are extremely minor and, in many ways, insignificant changes. And, and even the way that uh, the cast of Esmeralda, apparently everything is that in terms of the decor and all that is precisely as described, but clearly there's a theatricality to the, uh, the Roman and, and uh, many. Uh, right. Well, I, once again, this is a director. I mean, yep. he, you know, he's given this cast or he chooses some of his cast. Yep. You know, um, one of the fun stories is that here was a guy coming from Europe, and basically he looked at the script and said, oh, what we should do is get famous old actors to play the witches. And they said, who? And he said, I have no idea. So he drew pictures of what he thought each character would look like, and they went out, the casting people went out, and matched his drawings to real actors. So most of his cast came... You know, he probably didn't know who they were, but was told that they were well-known. Well, and obviously they, uh, the most fun yeah. was the change to get Ruth Gordon. Yeah, because clearly uh, I, I... She was not like... This, this absolutely was a change because of casting, because in the novel she's a little Polish lady with basically the same energy and all that, but... You know, Ruth Gordon is Ruth Gordon, and you have to change to who she it's is. It's really amazing that her husband's name is Roman, and <laughs> they're they're from what uh, Dubrovnik or, um, or something like that. Like that. Or, what, uh, I mean, you'd think that Polanski would have inserted that, but no, that's in the book too. That's, well, yeah, also, that's, that's it also incredible. when he read the when he read the manuscript that Castle had, 
that also could have been one of the intriguing things. That yes. Goes, this is intriguing to me. <laughs> this is like me. <laughs> yeah, because Levin apparently violently uh, rejected that whole notion. There's uh, no subconscious way that when he wrote the book, you know, uh, yeah. he's thinking, you know, yeah. I'm, no. Because uh, it, it was all based on the anagram. Right. So, I mean, so yeah, could, there's that. no way. Yeah. Uh, so that would be a, it's a, a happy accident, I think, but uh, or happy coincidence, but it's, I don't think it has anything to do with yeah. Well, I think anything. because of this happy coincidence, this was one of the reasons, I think, why um, a lot of tabloid journalists thought that uh, Sharon Tate was killed because of yeah. Polanski's so-called connection to the occult or something. Well, I mean, a, like lot of, a lot of people reacted to it. I mean, there were tons of rumors that uh, Anton LaVey... The American uh, sorcerer um, was somehow connected with this and loaned them his costumes or whatever. Mm. None of it's true. I mean, right. you know, this. But this was a period in which um, the occult was very popular with a huge amount the of the population. The occult was huge. Yes, the occult was huge. And again, I think it's just basically the the compatibility of the yeah, you know, great. But there's still, I mean, God knows. Oh, we see Mother this year. I mean, last year. Okay, it, it may be back again. Uh, Hereditary uh, is certainly that kind of film. Uh, so we had two films that have had modest success. Well, this has been a th- there have been horror movies about the mother-child, you right. know, the horrific child story, endlessly since this film was made. Horrific child, horrific mothers. Basket case is the basket case. Basket case, yeah, sort of, yeah. Uh, well, that's a horrific brother. Oh, okay. But but yeah. So but I, but there are a whole batch of you know the, the horrible baby and everybody has to take care of it. You know. Yeah. Oh, child, child the, with claws. You know. Oh God, yes. We well, the there. omen. Well, once again, yeah, the omen is definitely in this. The omen's like the a omen, sequel the to Rosemary's Baby. The omen, the this, and this are sort of that that era of. Let's write some really scary books. Which is sort of interesting. You know, do a sociological three. Uh, I grew up in a period of time, where. Um, domineering mother uh, well to a certain extent Albie comes out of that period you get the uh, Martha in Missouri which well, would have been the mother from hell right. but he wrote a book uh, a play earlier uh, uh, called An American Dream where you have fundamentally uh, uh, you know uh, when I was growing up on, on live television in the 50s Rebel Without a Cause has this to a certain extent. Mm. The domineering mother, the controlling right. mother of the kitchen. It wasn't all Ozzy and Harriet. Uh, and so that was one of the, one of the motifs, and who knows whether... Um, now, let me ask you, re, you remember the Stepford Wives more than I do. Because, uh, you know, obviously, Get Out is heavily indebted to Stepford Wives. Yeah. And, uh, like, okay, when we, uh, with Rosemary's Baby, my, uh, um, uh, Kathy did a whole uh, uh, analysis of the number of ways in which there are parallels between Get Out right. uh, and Rosemary's Baby and conscious uh, things right. in it. And again, there, there, there are a lot of parallels. And uh, Although I have a good question. When did Bad Seed come out? 56, I think, Patty okay. McCormick. All right. So Based that, on a play so which was written earlier. Horror, so that kind of horror had been, you know, there were, horror wasn't that new, and that was a really good horror film. <laughs> I have a feeling it creaks now. Yeah, I'm sure uh, it does. You know, it was like certainly mid '50s. I remember seeing it, and it was a cause celeb film. It was a play, and I know that everybody wants to go to see the film because again, it was like new territory, and no one had ever seen. You know, films like Mommy Dearest or whatever that that haven't happened. These uh, kinds of films like uh, Child's Play and whatever else you know we, we've had of these things, demonic Chris children. Rue. 
Uh, was there ever a sequel to Rosemary's Baby with the demonic child coming yes. to birth? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, directed by the guy who the edited the, the editor, editor of who, Rosemary's who Baby, saved, who, who yeah. helped. Uh, oh, Pop, Pop, Robert Polanski ended up doing, and yeah, it but didn't, that film it didn't really well. sucked. <laughs> Let's be honest. Uh, no, well, <laughs> it was like a TV movie. It was a TV movie. Yeah, oh, okay. I, I, I saw it many years ago. Many years ago. Because you know, uh, even with your Patty age, Duke, I think was in it. Patty Duke starred, yes, and you know, it was just it was a con- supposed continuation, kind of like The Omen was a continu had its sequels and. I mean, I'm just trying to impose the, the women's. I mean, I just really do see, but you know, I think JP's softer interpretation of the ending is is okay, because they talk her into it. But they talk her into it, into be the mother of your baby. That's what, what I would go to the more cynical thing, uh, what price motherhood, I'll do anything to be a mother. Uh, and especially since during the overall trajectory of the film, she gets stripped away of almost everything that she has control over. And even though she does spit in John Cassavetti's face, uh, but what she, she really wants to be a mom. I mean, she's from Omaha, Nebraska. So mom, you, dad, apple you don't pie. think it's a choice she makes? Uh. Well, no. Uh, she gets, I, 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 the way, yeah, I don't uh, it's a, have a different point in emphasis in describing it, but I think we're basically in agreement on the ending. That, and with all the way in which, you know, Roman, uh, Roman whatever, Cassavis is, is be a mother to your child. That's the emphasis, be a mother. Right. And that's where I come out with my way of reading the ending. And that convinces her. Uh, that convinces her. And it's, I mean, yes, you can say, argue it's a choice, but it's coming to our natural instincts. So, and that's why I say, what price? I'll be a mother at any cost. And even if it means nursing the, ba- uh, the, the devil. Uh, yeah, no, I'm definitely more, <laughs> more negative than you are on it. So. Well, I, and I, I, that's rare for us. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and for once, I like that. <laughs> uh, and again, for a major studio Hollywood film, uh, to end that way, which I think most people take it. Mm-hmm. I said, wow. Uh, but that's the way the book ends. Well, yeah, I mean, it's but faithful. It's, but well, that, we, but it's, remember, Hollywood used to change the ending of movies all the time. I, we were talking about what? Um, Barrel, Hemingway's uh, Farewell Arms. Farewell yeah, Arms, where they changed the ending. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, on the other hand, in Pulaski, when he makes his next movie, um, changes the ending, and he makes it more negative. Uh, Macbeth. Macbeth. Uh, he doesn't change the line of text, but instead of what goes on in classic Shakespeare, you have uh, the restoration of moral order and all's right with the world. What happens here, the younger brother goes back to see the witches, and it's all going to go on again. Right. There's no line of text with any of that. It's just a question of what uh, Polanski does visually. So I think it's consistent with Polanski not to have happy endings. Yeah, uh, but also it was also... Uh, a change in Hollywood and in indies at the time were to not have. I mean, Bonnie and Clyde ends up in a gorgeous bloodshed of death, you know, total tragedy. Um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, you know, the two of them. Easy run Rider, out to Captain be more, America gets blown, the symbolic uh, character gets blown up. Absolutely, at the end. that that this was this was uh, let's shake up things, and this is part of that let's shake up things. This is one of those films that shook it up, uh, you know. You know, I still remember walking out of some of these films like, um, what was it, Games, 
which I think was another studio film, even though it was Cur- Curtis Harrington, um, Simon Signore. Oh, the remake of Diabolique? Yes. Okay, yeah, which, games, games. Which, walking out of that theater, I mean, I went with my girlfriend, and we walked out, and we didn't want to talk to anybody. We were terrified. <laughs> you didn't want to talk to any, you didn't want to be around other people. It, it just told you how evil and horrible people are, and the ending left you with this horrible feeling what is and i guess it's some sociological thesis that i'm sure has been written already when you know you get to the mia pharaoh in uh, uh in um uh, purple rose of cairo you go off to escape and you see movies with happy endings certainly uh beginning with uh bonnie and clyde pratt or no, certainly seconds uh frank number seconds which is not a, a hit it was a paramount film though no? right uh we did have a major the films people want to see are all films with unhappy endings right but again, it goes in with the zeitgeist of the period, the anti-war protest, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, and also the, the whole idea of film as art, that 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 European thing where there were lots of tragic endings in European films. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and then Star Wars came. You still got yeah. We're gonna few years before things. Star Wars, but that that that, that, that again, changed things. But once again, this you know that was sort of the second you know second wave of second, young yeah. filmmakers. And, you know, it's all interesting for, for you know, sociological um, uh, perspective because, after all, Star Wars came out, but Raging Bull came out a couple of years later. Well, um, it's interesting because of, of that group of filmmakers, Spielberg, Lucas, Scorsese, uh, Coppola. Uh, Coppola, De Palma, it's Lucas and Spielberg who were the studio guys, the, the, the studio guys with the, the happy endings. The other guys were still, you know, you know, taxi driver. You know, oh, well, well, but you can also separate same those. generation though. Same but, generation, but, but yes, they were. Exactly. Remember, you have the New York crowd, you have the West Coast crowd, because Spielberg, Coppola, and uh, oh, is Lucas. that how you separated? Oh yeah, definitely. Really? Because the because uh, those were the guys who went. You know, as soon as they got out of college, they were in the studios. Whereas De Palma and um, all the New York boys, um, they were making features before they got totally involved with with the with the studios yeah studios were financing some of them but they were still new york filmmakers yeah, but coppola wasn't you know his father was a music the, the godfather is composer. not a happy ending film godfather is a gigantic successful novel that he adapted yeah but it's not a happy ending film it's not a happy film neither was the fel- was the book right so but 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 it's it's same well Coppola I think what is it uh, ten years older than all all the other guys right and no he's the same generation yeah no but he's the same generation he's a bit older though he he Maybe was kind years. of their their guru it's shades of gray on that one it's, yeah. it's a, uh, it, and and you know he's a, he's a guy they all graduated from film school some on the east coast some on the west coast mm-hmm. uh, because to a certain extent um, he made a thesis film he must have. He um, Amblin is a thesis. Film. He was he was um, he was invited to direct for television. For well, that, you know you know the the legend was that's how that it started. The legend was he he moved into Universal's y- yes Black Tower, <laughs> found found an empty office and moved in, and right. they assumed so they gave him a shot. But his first yeah. film that anybody sees is is a TV film, Duel. Duel, yeah. right. Yeah, um, but he directed television shows prior to that. Yeah, he, yeah he'd done Columbo. He, he did Columbo, Columbo that people yeah. saw. Yeah. Um, well, the fir- first one that really had his name on it. Like, yes. you know, one of the Palma films, Hi, Mom, and Greetings were not exactly films that people, I mean, I saw well, them, Well, but those, those, those were actually college films. Yeah, they were. Yeah, so. 
and, and the, New York, you know, once again, the New York influence and the West Coast influence are slightly different. That's and an one, interesting way. That's an interesting. Well, this uh, is also why when Hollywood ran into trouble, they went to New York and said, Mr. Frankenheimer, Mr. Lamette, and all of these guys, would you come to Hollywood and make films? Because mm. remember, all these, all of those guys came out of New York. Yeah. And came out of television mainly. And of course, we go back to the. Uh, there's a whole way of looking at this thing in the upheavals of uh, of um, uh, the studio system in the 50s, where I talked earlier about uh, Cinerama, Cinemascope, VistaVision, whatever other things they were coming up with. Uh, at the same time, um, beginning around 1950, the artifice of studio sets, they were doing more, using more and more New York-based films, location films. And so you have these gritty sort of street things like Panic in the Streets, Kazan. I mean, there's a whole way. Either, either television directors like Frankenheimer and Lumet, uh, they were getting to make films not in Hollywood, but in New York. Uh, and on the waterfront comes out of that zeitgeist. Yeah, it's, it's all um, uh, the... It's, uh, it's, well, it's a much grittier way of looking at film. Yeah. The New York vision of film seems to be much grittier and down to earth and much more sort of owing more to the neorealist than to the Hollywood yeah, world. Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, the neorealism is... is uh, and certainly, there's no way of not uh, looking at on the waterfront with thinking of a certain indebtedness to neorealism. Mm -hmm. uh, and different acting styles, because you had the method actors coming in as opposed to the Hollywood styles. Right. And, uh, and then you get these weird blends like 12 Angry Men, where you have a studio actor like Henry Fonda being with Lee J. Cobb. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating period. And of course, I grew up fundamentally liking the black and white New York films of the 50s. The films I liked the best that I can remember from the 50s were the Westerns uh, and the black and white New York films. Right. I did not like Douglas Firk films. <laughs> I, I, I love the black and white New York films. Even though and, I'm, uh, I'm from a different generation. And I'm Although you didn't like <laughs> Honeymoon Murders. <laughs> I didn't, that's right. Yeah, I didn't like that film. Which and is definitely a New York plot. Uh, Rosemary's Baby was shot in uh, New York, right? Of course. The exterior yeah, was the shot exteriors. in Dakota. The interiors in, were shot on, on a stage. In L.A.? In, in Paramount, know. yeah, I think so. That's what I probably, read anyway. Probably. Okay. But, uh, again, the bookend kind of thing, you know, establishing shot in the shot. I mean, um, the establishing shot's interesting because I think uh, I think what he's doing is he's building a contrast between the rest of the film, which is so claustrophobic. I mean, it's a way to emphasize the claustrophobia of the rest of the film. But you know, it gives us a panoramic shot. I don't think he's making. I don't want to the idea that I kept on waiting for that opening shot because the way it goes through, it's like the opening shot of Psycho. But it doesn't come into uh, beneath no, the, uh, the, the exterior. You don't get to that kind of thing where you get going to the, uh, the the window. John no, but on the and, other and, hand, and, you know, you have a film like Doctor Zhivago, where they build kind of film. they build Saint Petersburg on a back lot. So how do you make it look big? Well, he starts off with a with a shot through a microscope. Then the city looks a little bigger than it would have otherwise. Right. So I kind of thought that that's sort of what Polanski was I doing. Think, I, I agree with you, and I think that's what the, the bracket, which David likes so much of, the, of this film, is that the opening gives us the big, dirty city, and we move in, and suddenly now we can go into, now we're going to really head into claustrophobia. And, and he keeps the claustrophobia almost right to the ending. And I love the last ending, because for me, okay, as I mentioned, the, the last ending is... 
She picks up the baby and suddenly it's like we pull back on the whole building and it's like this gigantic scream reverberating. So thank you guys. I think it was a great discussion. Uh, another episode of The Rear Window. Whatever. No, thank you so much. We, I certainly enjoyed it. I bond. This is good. <laughs>